Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Drew Meredith, quick question for you. Was, is there any opportunity for Dr. Andrew Derrimuth to be correct in his call of form? There's still a chance. There is still a massive chance, clearly. (laughs) Some of the data out this week, mate, uh, suggests that Dr. Andrew Derrimuth's call of an interest rate cut in 2023 could be alive and well. I've been apologizing a lot and I may be apologizing too soon. I think I apologized on stage in Adelaide last week, didn't I? Yes, you did, sir. You did. And um, But I got to admit, like some of the data out this week in particular, last week in the economy here in Australia, seems to suggest that there's momentum behind worsening conditions. Is it a surprise though? It's not a surprise, but I think where this week for me at least, was the telling week for a lot of the negativity. Like you saw that business confidence shoot through the floor. Taking. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think it was like a bunch of other data, not just the co- business confidence, but consumer confidence, CBA out with some results, which we'll get to in a minute. But hey, Drew Meredith from Mortal Partners Financial Planner, many years of experience. How are you going? Pretty good. And it's always worth re-explaining the Andrew Derrimuth that they're not two separate people. <laughs> yes, yes. So Andrew Derrimuth is not a separate person. Um, it's just an alter ego that we conjure up whenever uh, Drew has a prediction of the economy. Economic predictions, mainly around interest rates and bond yields. Yes. It was, but it was, it was it the, re- retail sales you're talking about? Well, retail sales, but I was just going to add that uh, Dr. Andrew Derrimuth did get to the third round of interviews for the, the, the latest um, RBA governor seat and just missed out, unfortunately. Just. Yeah. just. <laughs> they checked his CV and they realized there were a few things in there. <laughs> Fake PhD. <laughs> yeah. Not actually an Esquire. <laughs> no, <laughs> this is all true. So, yes, retail sales, you were saying? Well, they f- was it a fall of 0.8%. Last month, even with higher prices from inflation at the same time. So, it's not unexpected because you can't keep increasing interest rates at the same time that uh, so mortgage repayments go up at the same time, energy prices are going up, and people are naturally going to stop spending in some areas, uh, even though interest rates aren't impacting everyone. Um, so, it's been yeah, super interesting. And I think the US inflation data overnight kind of reconfirmed the same story, which was at the time everyone said how all this inflation was demand-driven. If you remember that, the headlines were all yeah. about, you know, we're spending, we're spending, we have to increase interest rates to fix demand. But 
it's clear and it was quite clear that a lot of it's supply driven. So falling energy prices because of what happened in the in Ukraine and Russia has been a big contributor to US inflation now only 3.2%. And if you uh, they, uh, I think you saw a 0.2% for one month. And if we annualize that. <laughs> we all love annualizing, let's be honest. 2.4% growth, 2.4% inflation. So you could almost be in your target band. Mm. But noting that's period to period. So you're comparing it from a higher point last year, obviously. So that's the way in the, the challenge of inflation is you're probably more concerned about how inflation is going over a long period of time, not one point to one point. Yeah, yeah, and it's so hard for that balancing act, right? Because the decisions that people make today at the RBA or wherever impact for not just twelve months, but for a very long time. And that's the the balancing act. It's like the old elephant on a tightrope, so to speak. Um, yeah, it's just been really interesting. And the speaking with business owners in particular over the last um, few weeks on the road um, has been re- really telling. Of people are genuinely concerned about. Um, what's happening in the economy about their ability to save and spend and reinvest and do all these types of things. And the reason why I bring up businesses is because Australia is a small business economy, like over 2 million um, businesses in effect in Australia um, that power our lifeblood um, of the economy. So obviously what you just mentioned, we've been on the road. Uh, we had the first two RASC road shows. Um, you were you delighted us in Adelaide. You got caught in a snowstorm in New Zealand. Yeah, couldn't make uh, it back, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you did grace um, us in Adelaide. And there's been a lot going on. We've got uh, a couple of events coming up. If you're in Victoria, regional Victoria, get down to Tarelgan because Jamie Nemsis will be joining us down at the Tarelgan event along with Matt from Aussie Firebug, Captain Fi, um, Emma we're Edwards, getting, the broke generation. We're getting so the, many the bear suit out. Well, he's going to bring the bear suit down to Terrelgan yeah. with him. I don't know how he's going to be received walking around Terrelgan, to be honest. But um, in a bear suit, yeah, yeah, he's a big guy. For those who don't know, ja- Jamie is a is a big, broad fella. Um, so in a bear suit, he probably looks a bit like a bear. But um, but he's uh, he will talk some sense into the crowd down in Terrelgan. I'm sure it'll be great to have him there. But uh, grab your tickets. It's only forty bucks to come along. You get some drinks and whatever. And it's a great night to be honest it's just good fun and everyone has a laugh heaps of giveaways etc what have you been working on mate i've been working a lot uh, i mean mm. i was gonna we we're referring to inflation before so we're doing like an annual review of all our staff which is always a fun process and we were talking about <laughs> is there a link between inflation and and wage increases um and we've we don't necessarily think that's driven by inflation but more product and a connection to kind of productivity and mm and growth it's probably a bit too serious though <laughs> uh, yeah i mean i loved going over to adelaide last week we had some fun talking about artificial intelligence and oh, it's always good when there's artificial intelligence in the room we've also uh, as we as we chatted yesterday we've got um, a special little project we're working on in the background uh for yeah. the home of retirement advice so won't yes. won't disclose too much but um yeah so the thing is yeah work. there's a lot to for retirees in Australia, there's a lot to do. Whether you're just saving up and you know, you're know you a PAYG employee, maybe your partner's the same and you just think you're worried about retirement. We recognize this, like particularly Waddle Partners, which is a specialist in retirement, right? Um, we recognize this and we know and we're working on something. And I think we can say that the Melbourne event um, – is, is something that you should keep an eye out in October. Yep. Um, free event for anyone who wants to come along to the Waddle Partners event. It's open to everyone. 
It's going to be focused on retirement, so check that out. Um, as they might say, it's going to be a golden event for the golden years. Um, so check it out. Um, there'll be We'll be banging on about it over the next few weeks. But in the meantime, if you're an accumulator or if you're a pre-retiree, you come along to a Rask Roadshow, meet Drew, meet myself and everyone else in the community. It's so great. Just an interesting one on staff reviews. So you have about 50 staff across your businesses, I think. 44, yeah. 44. Um, has Have you noticed anything different then from last year to this year? Specifically, I, I don't think like the inflation link hasn't been uh, as prevalent as we thought, like people asking directly for wages to keep up with inflation. Yep. Um, maybe, I mean, our, our approach is always how do you get great people and encourage, you know, train them so much that they can leave, but make them want to stay, I think is, you, you probably see it in the office as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'd probably suggest, like, we've got some work from home policy and that's probably been um, less of less concern. Our office is seemingly always full. Uh, so the flexibility, and you're seeing it around the world, that uh, people aren't demanding flexibility as much as before and people are getting excited to come back mm. into the office. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and people do want to meet people. Like it's yeah. it's pretty evident from our events as well. Like they're sellouts, and we all just want. I love it. It's just like recharges the batteries, and just getting out and seeing people face to face and talking about this sort of stuff is is really great. Um, so we've got yeah, we've um, we've got a lot we've been working on, but we do have a lot of questions sent in advance. Obviously, our two cents segment every Saturday morning. For those of you that don't subscribe on YouTube, on Apple, on Spotify. Uh, Drew and I are here sometimes with special guests like Jamie or whoever else. Every Saturday morning at 7 a.m., you can send us your questions using the link in the description for this podcast. Uh, it says, ask a question. I know it's pretty simple, but you just click that thing. It goes to an online digital tool and you can just submit your questions, select the Australian Investors Podcast. So we'll get to those in just a sec, but there's been a lot of company-specific news. Probably the one that stood out to everyone was all of a sudden people are like, CBA makes a $10 billion profit. Is that legal? Um, so um, this, why don't we start at the top? Um, obviously, one of the biggest companies in Australia reported a huge, huge headline number, cash profit, um, up 6% to $10.2 billion. Net interest margin, which is the margin that they make on lending money. So banks can make money in other ways too, like through fees and whatever, but actually on lending, um, increased their margin to 2.07. If you don't know what that means... It basically means that the banks make 2% profit for every, or $2 profit for every 100 they lend out. Um, but the key thing is that it's actually a lot lower than some other banks overseas. So um, there are a few reasons for that. A lot of people are thinking about competition. Overseas, it's not, it's normal to see a bank with a net interest margin of 3%, maybe high 3%, 4%, that type of range. A final dividend of $2.40 per share. The other thing in terms of risk that people are worried about, everyone's worried about this, is there was a slight uptick in impairments. Um, so they have to make provisions for these things. Obviously, they think they're going to lose money because people cannot repay. Um, the loan impairment expense uh, increased by $1.46 billion, according to Jazz Harrison over on Rask Media. And that Drew, cuts out of profit too, doesn't it, the impairment? Directly. So that's, yep. that's what we forget, that if you're impairing those loans, and this says a $10 billion profit this year, if you have to impair, that's one5 and not, not much has happened to the economy yet. Mm. If it's $5 billion, the profit is half wiped out. So yeah. it's one of those kind of often forget, off-forgotten things. Um, I think the big one, I think you mentioned the net interest margin, which improved over the year, but actually halved, worsened in the second mm. half. And they're yeah, saying yeah, still a lot of competition in that mm. loan market. Um, mm. And it's still hard to see exactly what's going to happen to 
to property. But you know, after basically writing down something like a hundred million in arrears or impairments every every six months, it's not that it's good to see, but I think it's healthy to see some impairments in such a massive loan book after such high level of growth. Obviously, not good for the people that having are struggling to pay their mortgage. Yeah, it's um, but it's true. We've heard stories about quote unquote mortgage prisoners. Not to add to that, um, pretty gloomy uh, term, but um, we do see a lot of people with, not a lot of people, but some people with negative equity or people that can't refinance to a lower rate because they can't get the borrowing capacity to get to that level. So um, they're stuck in their home basically. Um, Now, there's so many things to talk about here, but I guess one of the things is that people were worried that it's so big, it's so powerful, it makes too much profit. But CBA is the biggest bank in the country, right? And there are certain policies that are in place for financial stability. Uh, and I know there's two sides to this, like the old cliche that banks um, privatize profits and outsource uh, losses uh, and rely on the government and so on and so forth. But for the most part, CBA is a really high quality bank. Um, and if we do see an uptick in, ex- in impairments, you'll probably be grateful that the bank um, has been run this way. Um, I think we're also so- paying tax on those profits. Like we, yeah. profits aren't tax-free. Yeah, not like to forget. companies, right? Like some, most of the tech companies. Just ask our friend over at the the other place because <laughs> their books. Um, they gave him some wonderful advice. Um, but yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, um, they do pay taxes here in Australia, and a shed load of it as well. Um, so I don't. Personally, I don't have a problem with them paying profits. Obviously, we want to keep uh, paying tax and making a big profit. We want to keep them accountable. They are accelerating pretty quickly into business lending, which is a big area of focus for CBA, um, which is basically saying to NAB, which is the second biggest bank, basically saying to NAB, like, we see you coming and we see what you're doing here and we're, 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 we're kind of ready for the fight. Um, anything else that really jumped out at you from the result, mate? Like anything in particular? No, it's probably the media coverage that came after it, as as you're saying. And I kind of mm-hmm. look back to the oil and gas sector and even Qantas, which seems to get the same treatment as CBA when they deliver a profit. But yeah. <clears throat> as compared to CBA, something like Woodside, and lost, the company lost money for like actually accumulated losses for three or four years when, when oil prices were lower. Yeah. But it continues to employ people and keeps paying people. That's where the losses come from. So... Yeah. This is like a bump of profit is kind of offsetting loss you've had in the past. That's not so much for the you know, big four banks, um, but it is worth that consideration in the broader context that it's one year at a time and yeah. you know, they can disappear pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, I did see some interesting numbers around like the profit per person and what it calculates out to be in Australia, which is pretty alarming from the guys at Forager. Um Broadly though, pretty strong results. You can't really complain with a pretty meaty fully frank dividend coming at you from cba um still the best I, bank best still managed the best. bank by far oh yeah yeah there's no there's no question about that um other than like obviously if we include the five maybe if you go to macquarie there might be some competition around best bank but um for the most part a really good result and pretty strong it's just about it's always just been about what happens probably early 2024 to be honest that first half of 2024 calendar year what is going to happen in that period? That is the big unknown for a lot of people uh, right now. So, other results, Drew. Any other you want? To, any others you want to call out? Oh, AMP. I know you got a question later on about something you wish you sold, but um, <laughs> AMP has had some troubles of its own. You know, financial advice, <laughs> wealth management platforms—they've cancelled their capital return. So they were 
Everyone mm. knows they're trying to break up their business while they're operating, and they've cancelled a $350 million return of capital, which is a little bit um, disappointing. I didn't see this. Okay. Yeah. Because this was from, yeah, from some of the sales that they were making, yeah, of business units. Yeah, so they're a bit worried. I think they lost that case, which I'm sure they're appealing, the buyer of last resort. So financial planning practices uh, had kind of made agreements that they'd sell their business to AMP um, when they retired, and AMP reduced the amount they would pay them. The very simple basics. Don't quote me on that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but there was a court case where that said they had to, they should have paid them more essentially, and both parties will keep appealing, I'm sure. But they were putting yeah, money yeah. aside for those other legal actions coming from the Royal Commission. Yeah, right. It's um, it's a really interesting uh, industry, isn't it? Obviously, you're a financial planner, so you you know that how dominant AMP was in the past. Uh, but also the the newer businesses trying to solve the advice problem where they're just rolling up or they're aggregating. They're basically trying to be like the AMP of today. Um, and so many of them have been fraught with risk over the years. And there's so many of them in the ASX trying to do the same thing. Um, and there's really been no clean way to solve all of these financial planning problems for people and for investors. But um, I know a lot of investors who were looking at AMP shares were thinking, this is the catalyst. I'm holding out for this one. And it just... Just seems to be just a perpetual disappointment. The company, to be honest, um, and that's putting it kind of lightly for people. Um, I did see in your notes for today's uh, episode that you did have the pleasure of meeting Andrew Clifford and Bob Desmond. Yeah, that was fantastic. That was I probably didn't we didn't mention that because we filmed it live last Friday. But um, I sat next to Andrew Clifford, the co-founder of Platinum, uh, now CEO and CIO. Mm-hmm. Uh, we he he was at the same conference over in Queenstown. Um, and had the pleasure of sitting, you know, sitting next to him over dinner as well. Hmm. Cool, that's great. Any um, tidbits, like any stock tips? What do you got for us? No, no stock <laughs> tips. He's very, the, I mean, Platinum broadly is very positive on Japan. So I think we've got some questions around Asia and Japan, not really part of emerging markets, is seen more as that mature yeah. economy similar to the US and yeah. long, like often forgotten. But there's a lot of changes occurring in Japan. So he's super excited about that, um, mm. and yeah, super interesting and. Uh, insightful conversations managed to have with him. Um, and Bob Desmond, uh, similar. So Claremont Global, you probably, I'm not yeah, sure whether you've interviewed them as well. Show, yeah. Yeah. Raymond, yeah. And that's this unique 15 stock global equity portfolio. They just, it's probably the way you invest, you back really good companies and hold them for a long period of time. So hmm. is some of the, I managed to stump him with a couple of questions, <laughs> which were fun. And he asked who came up with them afterwards. <laughs> and who do come up with them? Me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and you wrote the question for someone yeah, else. There was a joke about his car or something, and I managed to, I, you know, for some reason, I may, I remember like the smallest things in conversations with people, and I brought that up. I, I made him get asked that on stage. Oh, right. Okay. I see. I see. Pulling the strings, the puppeteer. Um, yeah, shout out to Charlie Munger fans on Twitter. Um, did a few spaces talks about Japan last year, and I know it's very much in the headlines now, but. Uh, it was all over that um, for the last little while. Um, so, other news. Did you want to talk about Amazon or should we get to questions or my hypotheticals for you, mate? Uh, I think, did we cover Amazon last week? I mean, pretty solid result. Yeah. Uh, we had big tech all report last week. Apple was a bit underwhelming. Yeah. Um, and Amazon seeing pretty good growth in, in web services and even their e-commerce business is returning again, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, it's, it's just an absolute beast. I think, um, yeah, I mean, these are all businesses that you probably want exposure to some way or other. Um, the the co-founder of The Multiple, David Gardner, has this really interesting thing I was thinking about last night, um, which is, speaking of an Apple phone call, um, 
which is he has this thing called a fang score. It's basically like you add up the number. I think it's the number of years you've held each of your individual fang companies, and that's your overall score. That's a really good. It's a really good way to just think about like how long have you been exposed to these individual um, like juggernauts of the internet and technology. And uh, I think for the most part, like anyone who has a very big fang score would uh, would agree that it's been a pretty fruitful time. So that's great. I actually had a few hypotheticals for you for you before we get to everyone's questions that have been sent in. Thank you for those. And yeah, I usually a- put the hypotheticals forward too, don't I? Yeah, you usually th- uh, throw a few out, but I've got them this week. So I've got some questions for you, sir. Um, the, the first one is one that I've asked quite a few other people, but I don't actually think I've asked this of you, which is what's the best business model you've seen on, we'll just say on the ASX. So exclude those like juggernaut tech companies. Like what's on the ASX, what's been the best? I don't mind JB Hi-Fi. What? Yeah. Really? That like is not what I expected you to Prince, shove the stuff in there. I hate going to JB Hi-Fi <laughs> and I feel like I'm, you know, overpaying for vinyls whenever I go there. Um, but apparently that's what they cost now. Yeah, but right. this ability uh, to, you know, just roll out massive store growth and then pivot completely. But, you know, big, big floor space, but heaps of stuff in there and kind of, you know, reinventing retail at a time when a lot of retailers are struggling. You know, it's a very mm-hmm. commoditized business and doing quite well. Um, and, go for it, sorry. And I, th- I mean, just reinventing that business a couple of times in recent years. You went to White Goods, everyone was worried about that. And how do you keep expanding into different verticals? Mm. I was surprised you. What do you think I was going to come up with? No, I just thought that I just didn't think that retail, like a traditional bricks and mortar retail with an online offering, of course, would be the one that you go with. Um, Do you prefer, you said like you do and don't, it's like a love hate relationship between you and JB. Um, Do you prefer to shop at JB Hi Fi or Harvey Norman? JB Hi Fi. I drive past Harvey Norman all the time. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> sorry sorry jerry <laughs> yeah i must i must admit like i there's yeah jb hi-fi is always my go-to place for like electronics and that sort of stuff like there's nearly yeah i just go straight there i, I even phone plans and that sort of stuff there's a good phone plan actually you can get good phone plans just a quick a little um savings note you can um you can get some phone plans at jb hi-fi and they'll offer you like three six twelve hundred dollar cashbacks that you can use as vouchers and these types of things incredible stuff um Go and check it out. If you've got a phone plan and you just switch to like Telstra or Optus or whatever the heck it is, um, there's some really good phone plans there. Okay, so I, I, people have heard me say this before, but I, I often think on the ASX that Pinnacle is probably Pinnacle Investment Management, which is the PNI, is the ticker symbol. Um, I think that that's the most compelling business model I've seen because you take the best bit of funds management, which is that like hyperscale, um, huge profits, but you don't take a lot of the downside risk because instead of you owning and investing people's money, you just own a stake of the fund manager and you just support their growth. Um, so you do like the less sexy bits, but in doing so, you get the upside exposure, which is pretty cool. Okay, two more questions for you then. If you could go back in time and hold one investment that you sold, so you sold a stock in the past or an ETF or a fund or a property or whatever, Bitcoin, whatever you sold in the past, which one of those things would you wish you do you wish that you didn't sell? 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Can it be an ETF? Yeah. yeah. I sold gear. <laughs> oh, did you? In 2020. Well, like when it created? No, no, when it went up a little bit. But my tended, my hesitancy of, of maintaining it, where I mm. could have just held and held and held and held, uh, it tells you what my risk profile is probably. <laughs> so leveraged, leveraged market exposure did well, but couldn't stomach continuing to hold it. <laughs> Whereas if I did, you know, we'd still be doing pretty well. Well, that's, yeah, because obviously, so the gear fund um, adds leverage or debt to the strategy. So you get magnified returns both up and down. So you can quickly wipe it out just as quickly as you've made it. Um, that's really interesting. So um, again, did not expect you to say, I think it's some <laughs> sort of stock that, yeah, I was really early. Like I bought Afterpay and then I chickened out or something like this. Um, oh, the other one's Apple. Oh, yeah? We've all held Apple at some point, I think. Mm. Yeah. Uh, but you get a bad earnings result or you're in a bad mood and <laughs> sometimes you end up selling it. Um, okay. So this uh, is all- my younger uh, days. By, by the way, this is all Drew's personal investing. Yes, not clients. Def- <laughs> definitely not um, client money at Waddle Partners. Okay. My one was actually, I've spoken about it before, is actually Nearmap. So yeah. I bought Nearmap. What's the share price? I'm just going to bring this up on the screen right here. I bought Nearmap um, for 50 cents and I just sat on it and sat on it and sat on it and sat on it um, and it went nowhere. And then I sold it. And it was the, the key thing is this. I think it was the, the single, I think it was the second biggest stock I've ever purchased like in dollar value at initiation. So I went really hard into Nearmap. I think it was like 20% of my portfolio, like at initiation, thinking like this is going to go somewhere. Um, and held it, held it, held it, held it, sold it. And then it went up. I think it became a five or a six bagger from that point when I sold it. So that would probably be But the mine. story there is you're still doing well. Like your portfolio is still doing incredibly well. Hmm. Yeah. Well, we yeah, all- maybe. Yeah, maybe. But um we always They're remember the decisions where we sold too early or we didn't sell. I mean, the problem is when you don't sell and it's still sitting in your portfolio and we're not going to talk about those two. No, no. Final question is if you could go back and sell one of the investments. Okay, can't say zip. If can't you could go back, Can't say Dubber. If you could go back and sell one of the investments that you held on to, what would it be? Two. It's a two-part answer. Okay. Newix, but that was a stupid purchase. That's this a software again, for like personal, agencies and that sort yeah, of stuff. Yeah, I like. I used to like a falling knife until I kind of educated myself a bit better about you know getting compounding returns rather than trying to find short term uh, discounts. Yeah. Um, and as as bad as is Magellan, the the oh, yeah. uh, fund manager, because um, there's always this tendency for some reason we're all optimists and tendency to see turnarounds happening quicker than we than they do. Um, so it's wish I had a sold earlier. Then you could have been in a position where you, you know, you're buying it at significantly lower. And there are a lot of opportunities to sell, a lot of reasons to sell. But um, it's hard uh, when there's it is still looks like a quality business to make that decision. Mm. I'll give you two, um, 
and these were more not so much like personally i i've kind of got over them a bit but um for our members back in the day. It's just um, like, a, it's like a psychology appointment. We're just stepping in. Like you're in the studio, so and I'm recording remotely. This is like a, a remote uh, checking with couch. the site. Yeah. Uh, I'm just lying down. What do you see when you look at the chart? Um, so what I see <laughs> is um, I see two companies that we had recommended previously. Um, one was Pointera, which is like a data analytics oh, business. Yeah. And the other one... Um, which is Playside Studios. It does. Um, it's a game development business from Melbourne. Both really impressive Aussie tech companies, really small cap kind of companies. But both of them monstered returns straight out of gate. Purely, not so much for Playside, but definitely for Pointera. Um, had a lot of momentum early on. I think it was like a five or a six bagger for us. And I didn't sell, um, which I should have realized that. And my friend Claude Walker called me up and said, you should sell. And I was like, yeah, maybe. Um, and I didn't. Um, the second one with Playside, Playside, many people will know because we've had Jerry Sackers appear on the show before. Um, fantastic business, grew really well, but it was definitely just overvalued and I forgot to sell. I forgot, I just didn't sell because I thought Playside can still go on and it could still go on from here. Um, but it's just, yeah, I purely based on valuation, left a lot of capital on the table, could have lightened the load even slightly and re-deployed that capital. Um, so those are probably my two that I can think of off the top of my head. But hey, well, now we've got questions. There'd be a lot of stories similar to that though. So 2020 saw this massive surge in tech companies. So oh, yeah, a lot true. of those companies did incredibly well. I'm not sure there'd be hundreds that people wish they sold at some point. And that probably comes back to, we talk about, I said proudly boring. I'm going to get, not a, oh, I'm not going to be allowed to talk anymore. Like when I told Jamie, I said, proudly boring <laughs> but it's position sizing so it's fine to invest in those things and things can go wrong but don't put 20 percent of your portfolio in there if yeah, if, yeah, if your objective is isn't to you know triple your money and expect and and not be comfortable with losing 50 or 60 percent so i think mm. making sure you're allocating appropriate amounts to to those sort of companies is key mm. go big or go home i say proudly um. boring <laughs> <laughs> no good very sage advice um so We've got some questions sent in advance. That means that if you did ask a question, we don't know your personal circumstances because as you'll find out with the name of the questioner for this very first one, we don't think it's the person who they've named themselves after. Um, you will get the sense <laughs> of that. We don't, we, don't, we don't know your personal circumstances. There's no way for us to know. So even if we answer the question, it is not personalized financial advice. You need to say a financial planner like, say, Drew here or anyone that is listed on the moneysmart.gov.au website. Check their financial services license number. That's AFSL for short. You can look that up. You can search their name on the Money Smart website to see what they are qualified to give advice in. You can refer to the RASC Group's financial services guide available on the RASC website to understand what we can and can't say. The rest of this is strictly limited to general financial advice. Two more extra warnings. Past performance, not a guarantee of future performance. And read the product disclosure statement and TMDs that are available on the website because we're about to talk about ETFs and managed funds. So Supreme Leader Kim Jong-un writes in and says, Hey, broskies, thanks for the great content week on week. I have a question around emerging markets investing. Uh, I'm currently invested in a few funds, like the passive funds from Vanguard. And um, uh, and would a managed fund, like an actively managed fund, like say the Femex ETF, F-M-E-X, which is... And actually, it's actually not an ETF. It's a managed fund that's listed on the stock exchange. Fidelity Global Emerging Markets be an appropriate allocation in the emerging market space. 
Given that the volatility can occur, I feel as though it's one area of a portfolio that investors can really use an active approach rather than an index hugging. What are your well-educated non-financial advice views on this? So we're not going to take into account the personal aspect here, which is that you own um, you know, an index fund, but we're just going to speak purely from emerging markets perspective. What would make sense, whether active or passive? That's the general question. Drew? Yeah, I think we, we've talked about this a lot. There's certain asset classes where uh, our performance is more attainable or, or alpha yep. is what, what we call it. Um, emerging markets, smaller companies tend to be those because they're less well-researched, there's less analysts covering, there's a big, big universe. Uh, so we tend to to look for active management in, in these parts of uh, the world. I think a big one there is the fact that you know, we know the S&P 500 doesn't represent the economy. It represents the biggest business in the world. When you go to emerging markets, I think you actually want a representation of the economy. Like you want to be invested in the retail part or in the industrial part, whereas you buy the index in emerging markets, you end up with Tencent, you end up with Alibaba, you end up with all the biggest companies and not necessarily a representation of the what the economy is doing. And I think given these economies are growing. I mean, the whole reason of investing in emerging markets is that these economies are going to grow faster than the global economy. So you do want some exposure to the economy. And I think that only comes by looking at active management for a really long answer. Yeah, no, <laughs> it's true. I agree. Yeah. So we've, we've talked about this before. I'll add an extra layer onto what you just said, which is that if you think about what you're trying to do in a portfolio, you're trying to get exposure to growing uh, economies in Asia and principally Asia, um, ex-Japan, um, as an investor, what you can think of as a whole is what's my overall allocation? And then within yep. that, you have the different strategies. So it's not like I'm only going to use active for this reason. Um, how do they blend together? So sure, we're saying consider active, definitely there. Um, but that doesn't mean it has to be all or nothing. And I think that this fund in particular is one that I like. Um, we have recommended it. The, the, our company, the Rass Group, owns some units in this um, fund. Um, and I like that you can buy it via the exchange too, to be honest. Which definitely helps. Yeah. yeah. And, we, and I think there's different, as you said, what's the purest exposure and then what's the best exposure at the given time. Is 100% emerging market index perfect right now? Uh, it looks like you're crying. <laughs> I just like and coughed it. it. I'm like, oh. <laughs> I'd probably say it isn't the the purest expression. So you do probably want to blend it just to get that broader sector exposure um, across the economy. So I think, yep. Yeah, we're only going to get 40 or so positions in this. And so if this, this is what I mean, like we talk about this ETF or this fund quite a bit. If this is your only exposure, it's sure it might have a great track record, but in the future, we want to kind of prepare for that maybe not to be the case. And so if you bank, like Asia is a big place. And if you just bet on some portfolio managers picking... 40 stocks, maybe it's too narrow in focus to be the entire allocation. So have that diversification in that in place just as that market matures as well. You want to make sure you are exposed to those winners. Um, that's a good question. The, perple- the perplexed investor writes in and says, equity crowdfunding is becoming increasingly popular through sites such as Birchall. Other than high risk, what are some considerations to think about as an investor? Additionally, I like the second part of the question. Additionally, why would companies choose this route to raise capital? Have they already been turned down by venture capitalists or private fund raising? So just a bit of context here. Crowdfunding is this particular part in the law 
that allows private companies to go to these websites that facilitate and make it easier for you to invest in private companies. And these are typically small companies and they typically happen to fund growth. So the types of businesses you might find on here, I think Booktopia went through this process. If you know Booktopia, the website where you can buy books, um, they they go through this process and they basically invite their, sh their users, like their, um, their account holders or just people from the public to invest anywhere from say $1,000, $2,000 up to $50,000 or $100,000 um, in these private companies. And obviously there are a lot of risks involved, but it's just a way for companies to get money in the door to fund their business and to keep growing. So kind of like what they would, crypto was doing with DAOs, wasn't it? Was that yeah, basically like broadly you're trying to get your users to own part of your company? Yeah. And you can you don't have to be a user of say Booktopia, for example. That was a really interesting one for me because I was like, this is a big business. It's not a little business that was doing crowdfunding. It was just, it's a big business. And then I believe uh, Booktopia, if I'm not mistaken, I'm just going to do this now, actually went on. Um, couldn't list. raise it, I think. Yeah, uh, I think they struggled to raise money in that raising and then had a great run-up or great demand in the pandemic and then went to list afterwards, yeah. Yeah, so they listed up around, looks like around about $3 a share. Uh, it hasn't been a great... A uh, little while for those guys, but that's okay. Um, so broadly, what we know the risks are extremely high because when you put your money in, you're basically giving up exposure to um, you're giving up your capital for exposure to a private business that might never be offer a way for you to sell your shares. I mean, um, we we love private simple. markets. I think you love private yeah. markets as well, I but it's it. at a very different it. scale to this. Like yeah. private markets now views in in you know using a private equity firm to help buy a, a large business and turn it around and, and the kind of higher returns you get from that. I, I see this as more, and you can tell by the structure of it, you're not taking a real ownership, you've got no control. It's more of that engaging with companies that you like mm -hmm. and more of that little satellite that gives you some kind of pleasure in and engaging in your investing. Because um, I think you most of the times you're not going to see 10, 15 baggers, which we think comes out of these. It's more being able to engage with those companies. I, I got to admit, so as a business owner, I would consider doing this over venture capital. VC, yep. Because when you get venture capital on your books as an, I, I won't say that because you're not a venture capitalist, so I, I can say this to you, but if anyone else is appearing on your show, I wouldn't say it to them. If you, take, yeah, if you take venture capital money, right, you basically, like, uh, Steve Sammartino said this, like you're basically trading bosses because yeah. they have entry and exit points that they want to get in and they want to get out. And they also have very, very different incentives to a long-term private shareholder. Yeah, with a venture capitalist, what you're effectively getting is someone who, or an organization that wants you to spend, 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 grow. And they just want you to do that because at the end of the day, they don't need you to be a success. They just need one or two of the 20 that are in their portfolio to be a success. So they're going to tell you to spend, spend, spend. Now contrast that with a private investor or a small group of private investors who are thinking, I want this to be a success because it's my money and I want dividends from this thing in the future. So take care of it. Um, and I've seen some businesses go through the equitize platforms, the, um, the, the virtuals of the world, all of these types of platforms, which I think are great. And they've come out the other end and they're okay. You know, they're okay. Um, 
And then they might use something like uh, primary markets, who I know you got you, you are familiar with. Uh, yep. Primary markets is basically like a they're trying to be a stock exchange for private companies, uh, and they use those to then allow shareholders to manage their shareholding. Um, and I the reason I like this is because you can effectively, if you're a private business owner and you want to go down this route, you can effectively turn your fans into super fans and investors who support your growth. And I just think that it may not be a big industry in Australia, but at the same time, I think it's a great way to get 50 shareholders in the door rather than have one big VC um, or two big VCs or whatever the case might be. So, it's all about, and your business is very much about your community. So I yeah. think it, it stays very connected to your community doing that way. Um, and I, think, I think a lot of the brands that go through these platforms are that way inclined. Like they have like the for-profit motives, but they might have another motive, which is like good for the planet, community-based type things. And I think if you're a business in that ecosystem, you should consider these options for you. It's just a very time-consuming, it's expensive process for businesses to go through. So it's easier if you have a really good quality business to go straight to a VC, say, here's what I'm offering, take it. Um, and that's why all the super high quality things you'll never see on those platforms, in my opinion, but you never know. Um, it's very risky. Yeah. Um, okay. So don't don't be mean. Dot dot dot. Reverting says uh, with a gro- growing number of active ETFs on the market, should younger investors with a longer twenty year time horizon be taking more notice? With large cap funds, active management generally seems to provide higher income and lower volatility, but lower long term total returns. These attributes seem to be more suited to those closer to or in retirement. What are your thought processes for longer term plays? I guess the general question here is, um, you know, should you be paying attention now that there are all these active ETFs as, as well as the regular index ETFs or thematic ETFs? Yeah, we're never going to sit at either side of this. I think there's going to always be a time for both. We know mm-hmm. that Spiva data will show 75, 80% of funds are active, particularly large cap, global and domestic underperform mm-hmm. over the, the long term. But there's periods when active management is so much, so valuable. And there's different parts within uh, within each cycle that active management is super valuable as well. I found the question, the, the comment about income a little yeah. bit weird. All I think there is maybe that an active manager is trading more and therefore they're realizing more capital gains. And then your distribution is higher, not your actual your, your income or your dividends. Your after tax return, um, yeah, yeah, and that unless of course you're in you know an actively managed ETF that is seeking more income, then obviously that makes mm-hmm. sense. Um, I think you should always be considering them, and and very much I love always bringing this one. It depends. <laughs> Here it is. Because you can't, it, one, you can't go through one two cents segment without Drew saying it depends. Because you, know, you don't have to be retired to want lower volatility. This is the thing. It's you're saying you get lower volatility with active management, which can be the case. But a lot of people that are younger don't want the the volatility that comes with just holding the ASX 200. So mm. uh, it's it's what's what's your objective and what's your what's your tolerance to to volatility and risk? Because um, you you generally will have better sector diversification via an active manager than via uh, the yeah. index, which is very mining and financials heavy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I just say focus on total return. It doesn't matter necessarily whether it's active or passive. Well, at the end of the day, what we're going for, I'd agree with you with the lower volatility comment, but what we're going for at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you're young, old, all the different uh, variations of human beings. Um, 
at the end of the day, we want long-term total returns. Really? We all just want total returns that are positive and whether it's active or passive, it doesn't really matter. But the only way that we can kind of make it simple for people to understand, to divvy that up is to have sectors or themes where active management probably makes more sense to consider because it is a time-consuming process to look at that. So like all of the active funds coming to market probably don't, not all of them would be deserving of our attention, for example. But in some instances, they would. Like we mentioned the Fidelity fund before the Femex ETF. That's an actively managed fund. Um, it's a good question. I'd just be very careful about where you're getting your general kind of gist around higher income, lower volatility. You can get that in different ways. Uh, there's an episode coming up with Luke Larity, actually, who uh, Drew and I know very well. Luke Larity and I talk about dividend ETFs and why there may be some real issues with some of the ETFs that are brought to market that focus on e uh, dividend income in particular. So blank said in a question says how, how the ETF fee is charged space question mark. When we say VAST fee is 0.07%, I can help you out with that one blank. It's adjusted daily. So an ETF fee is deducted daily um, and it automatically is adjusted in the ETF share price uh, because it's adjusted in the NTA. Uh, so which Value of stuff. It'd be like 0.07% divided by 365 or the number of. Yep. yep. And then applying that to the assets under management on that day and deducting it from the cash that, that sits within there, essentially. Yeah. So it just automatically comes out. You don't even see it, which is why it's a wonderful business if you're in that industry. Um, okay. We've probably got time for one or two questions. I like this one meta analysis. I got a workmate into investing in ETFs. Um, they say in 2021. In late 2022, early 2023, he invested heavily into Meta. He now wants to sell these and has asked me, what is the best way to do so while minimizing tax? All I can think to tell him was wait at least a year and to sell some each year to supplement his wage. Is there any other way he could sell his shares and keep his taxes low? So some person has bought um, Meta shares, which is like Facebook. Um, they've done by the seams of it, they would have done really well because that has really kicked off um, thoughts, Drew. I'm going to quote my business partner, Jamie, here, because as okay. everyone knows, I steal most of his ideas. <laughs> yeah, that's out there now. But we, we, have, we have so many clients come in that have a big holding, could be CSL or CBA or something else. And the biggest, the, the thing that we forget, this question assumes that that capital gain is guaranteed and it's staying there. So if, if you're... There's a risk that you know Meta fell 60 or 70 percent last year. Would you be comfortable if Meta fell 60 percent again? No, clearly not. So mm -hmm. it's kind of this: Do you just accept the fact that you're going to pay tax to remove that risk from your portfolio? Um, and that's the kind of out there aggressive <laughs> response. Yeah. The other one is, you know, if you're close to the end of financial year, well, maybe you'll try and sell a bit over two financial years um, to make sure you're realizing gains, like you would if you were selling a property or other assets. That not this isn't tax plan, tax washing or anything more tax planning that you could sell some in June and sell some in July and spreading your, your gain over two years. But then mm. you're carrying that market risk throughout regardless. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. That's a good strategy. I'd say like, um, don't let the tax tail wag the dog, so to speak. Like if you get wiped out uh, just because you're trying to hold on for an extra year, that's a long time to go for Meta, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, so just keep that in mind. Uh, the other thing would be um, if you're investing in directly in US shares, you need to fill out the W8 Ben form. If you don't know what that is, um, the W8 Ben form is basically a reduction in withholding tax. So if you sell, say you make a $10,000 profit on Meta, you're going to pay 30% tax in the United States, say, for example. Um and they're going to take that straight out and withhold that, right? 
Um, but if you fill out the W8 Ben form, and you can do this afterwards, it's even though you don't want to be in a position to do that, but you can fill this out and it reduces that to 15% because Australia and the US have a tax treaty. Um, that's what the W8 Ben form is how it works and that's through your um your broker make sure you filled that out um they have guides on their website because it's a hideous form to fill in uh, final... try, not, try not to do it through a trust or an smsf just from... yeah yeah because the more complicated your legal structure the more complicated those tax forms for overseas investing get and like it's like it doesn't go from like one to two in terms of complexity it goes from like one to ten in terms of complexity <laughs> so we then we talked about this question today which is the value of a platform and that is one of the values of using a platform like cfs or hub 24 or net wealth yep. um that you don't have to do all the additional paperwork if you want to invest overseas absolutely uh, so final question comes from mr calipigi Calip- mr calipigi i don't know i don't understand that maybe maybe just google that real quick drew i don't know what that means but um the, the question is um i'm I want to target specific themes for my investing to then narrow down the companies. Okay, so target specific themes. We got that. The uh, so, so the RAM was prominently called Solid Gold. He subsequently produced offspring expressing the unusual phenotype, which is referred to as Calipigi. Animal was dem- demonstrating. Yep, something to do with a founder. It refers to a ram, so a, 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 a ram from Greek mythology. Note to self, do not read out definitions from Wikipedia on the podcast. <laughs> okay, the second part of the question is goes on. The theme I want to get to target, which is a really interesting theme, is companies that are growing in sectors with no specific industry via small to medium-sized regular M&A deals. So they're buying small businesses and rolling them up. A company like Kelly Partners Group, KPG on the ASX, is doing just this. We've obviously had Brett Kelly on the show before. I find it time-consuming to identify companies that are doing this since the approach I have used is to research a specific company and monitor their activity to see um, if they are growing in this manner. Is there a more efficient way to search for this type of thematic? I don't think it's really a thematic. I'd say it's a model, like a business model, which is very hard to find. And it's obvious why people look for these types of companies. They're called roll-ups. So a roll-up is a business like roll-up, roll-up, not really. But um, a, they it's a type of business that uses its scale to buy smaller businesses that can't blow its existing business up, but also slowly add to the value of the the big mothership, if you will. Um, and by far the most prominent example of this in the world is Constellation Software in Canada. Um, it's been doing this for a few decades now. And under Mark Leonard, it basically buys small software businesses, two to five million dollars of revenue or two to ten million dollars of revenue. And now Constellation Software itself is multi-billion dollar company. And the interesting correlation here between Mr. Ram here and um, what we're talking about is there is a common director between um, Constellation Software and Kelly Partners, and that is Professor Lawrence Cunningham, who appeared on this podcast a couple of months ago. How do you target it? Don't know, Drew. I don't know if there's a particular way to target it. This is like the one I want. You Basically, you're trying to do private equity in public markets, and it's very difficult in public markets. There's a lot of roll-ups, as you're saying, that have, that have tried in this sector. But mm-hmm. the problem with public markets, so the ASX, is that you have to report that growth every quarter. And if it starts to slow, 
shareholders kind of sell off and then once the share price starts moving you you under your board becomes under pressure from the market so it's very much a private equity approach we prefer to do this via an allocation to private equity within our growth alternatives and that's where similar to venture capital but with mature businesses you're essentially giving a company money to buy those and helping them integrate it at the same time but doing it for 10 15 20 companies mm. um so you, mm. you diversify in that risk and i mean the returns you can get on private equity is generally 15 to 20% per annum over the mm. long term. Yeah, private equity has been tremendous. Everyone keeps saying like, yeah, my index funds up done really well the last two decades. Well, if you're in private equity over the past two decades, you probably would have done in a good private equity allocation in a portfolio, you would have probably done double. So um, keep that in mind. But uh, just really quickly on these models, um, I always have this phrase with them that they're good for they're, they're for a good time, not a long time, because most of the time they don't work out. They have to make bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger deals and expand into new territories and add more complexity to their businesses as they grow in order to make their growth look worthwhile. And the reason that that has to be the case is that a lot of these acquisitions don't actually add value to the majority of the company. So a lot of these roll-ups, you need to be really careful and ask yourself, does this add value to the broader business? Now, Constellation Software has been able to do what it does because it is a software business where it can just bolt on these things and they don't damage the rest of the business. But most other businesses don't do this. Most other businesses are just roll up of service-based companies, kind of like Kelly Partners here. And you need to be careful and remember how much value is created by adding an additional business this way um, and you don't want management having too much debt and all those types of things a good example for st students of history is abc learning in australia trying to roll up childcare centers then g8 education and a few others and then um, slater and gordon as well um, we were part of one once upon a time so when jamie's business was originally sold it was into a, a roll-up essentially oh, right. um, but the, the the challenge that you have is that your you a lot of groups buy mm -hmm. revenue and the revenue keep uh, you get revenue growth but can you ever extract the profit growth at the yep. bottom? Because that's what you're saying is where the real business value comes from. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's a lot of them very, do very hard. You need very. a different person to do that kind of business versus just running a Kelly Partners as it is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and this is not to say that Kelly Partners can't do it. It's yep. just that it's a very, um, it's a very tricky thing to navigate. Incredibly tricky. If I was going to give any broad advice, it'd be look for industries that have consistent revenue streams. Um, but are highly fragmented. So markets and industries that have thousands of small players and not many big players. Um, that's the, the kind of tell. Anyway, we've probably gone over time today, but Drew, I do really appreciate you taking some time to answer questions. People can get in contact with you on the Waddle Partners website. There is a link in the, the podcast player. You can click that link. It says financial planning uh, and you just submit your information. It goes straight to the Waddle Partners team immediately uh, and they'll respond to you via email or even give you a call. Our um, whole team is on the website now, which is positive. Oh, yeah. That website is coming along, mate. They're coming along. And uh, we do have some exciting news to share about Waddle Partners, but there is a – I think the link may be available in the show notes. If it's not for this Saturday, check it out next Saturday for the Waddle Partners event in October in Melbourne. A free event. Come along. It's mainly for – it is for retirees, so people that are almost at retirement or in retirement um, and typically people that are, you know, a bit further along in their financial journey. So – There'll be more information on the website if you click that link. Drew, Model Partners, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining me. I'll see you next time. Don't. No, we've almost forgotten. <gasps> you've, oh, you've cut. 
How could I do the dad joke? The only thing that people joke in Adelaide was incredibly bad. But no, they were trying to make it up with this one. All right. How could I closing out? Okay, here we go. Dad says jokes as usual. Take us out into the sunset. Go. Here we go. I returned my lizard to the pet store as he wouldn't stop telling dad jokes. That's not a lizard, the store clerk told me. That's a stand-up chameleon. And with that, I'll say goodbye to you, sir. Thank you for <laughs> thank you for coming along and sharing that wisdom with us. It's good to see you. You too. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.